Hello everyone, you're listening to Hazel Findlay on the Curious Climber podcast. So this episode I talked to Anoushe Hussein. Anoushe is a civil servant and a paraclimber in the UK. She was born missing her right arm from the elbow down and she is living with multiple health conditions. She has previously survived cancer. She's a Muslim and she comes from an ethnic minority, so not your average climber. Luckily, on the Curious Climber podcast, we find average climbers boring. So it was a real treat to talk to Anoushe and she had lots of different perspectives on lots of different issues. And we covered a lot of issues actually. And I I honestly could have just kept talking with her. It was a real test of willpower to cut the podcast at the hour 30 I could have kept going um, but we talked about many things including what lockdown was like for someone with the various health problems that she's got and the disability we talked about the politics and language of disability so what needs to change in our culture around disability we talked about the idea of inspiration porn in the disability world the difference between vulnerability and victimhood. We talk generally about paraclimbing and how competition works and what the scene is like. Uh, We talked about what climbing is like for someone from an ethnic minority and more specifically a Muslim and how welcoming climbing has been for her. We talk about body image and facial hair as a woman. We then talk about the headscarf, the controversial issue of the headscarf, which has now been broached twice on the Curious Climber podcast. Um, And we finish off by talking about how to make climbing more diverse. And Anushi actually works in diversity and inclusion. So she gave some really good perspectives and good ideas. And I learned a lot from Anushi actually about various these subjects uh, but probably most of all about diversity so fairly topical for what's going on in the world right now and extremely interesting like I said I could have chatted to her for a few hours more so I hope you enjoy I should just say as well that for those of you who are fans of the Curious Climate podcast if you would like to donate you can find the podcast page on my website and then click on the donate Uh, our editor Alex Dempsey really appreciates it when people donate so if you if you enjoy the content we're putting out there then feel free to donate if you can great well enjoy the podcast and stay safe how's it going yeah, it's going. It's going. <laughs> the days are passing. <laughs> so how have, how have things been for you? Maybe you could just tell the listeners a little bit like about your health issues <laughs> and, yeah, um, and explain how COVID has been for someone struggling with all of that. I think lockdown has been, and COVID has been generally a bit, it's been strange. I think it's probably the best way to put it. I mean, you've got all the sort of, difficult media to listen to about people dying about 
um, they were changing the criteria for who was clinically vulnerable and who wasn't. So at one point I thought I was going to have to shield. And then at another point I was told I don't have to shield. And now I've been told I don't have to shield, but my GP doesn't want me going to the shops. And I'm like, that's great, but I live completely on my own right now. Uh, not only that, um, because we were in lockdown, I'd lost all of my support, like a cleaner or having uh, somebody come around to help me in the flat. So um, I kind of going into lockdown, I was actually quite excited. I thought, okay, I'm going to be completely on my own. And this is the first time I'm going to be living on my own in a flat for, you know, since I moved to London, this is a really good opportunity for me to see what things I'm good at doing at home that I would normally just ask a cleaner or somebody to do for me. And what things do I really struggle with? And therefore, after lockdown, I don't have to ever feel guilty about asking for help again. <laughs> so I thought, you know, this is going to be a really empowering experience. And then 10 days into lockdown, I dislocated my knee. And suddenly, this whole list of things I would have loved to have tried doing, like mopping the floor and vacuuming and, um, you know, spring cleaning the flat, suddenly became completely impossible. Um, and suddenly it was like, hmm, let's see if I can walk from my bed to the kitchen table. Let's see if I can walk from the kitchen table to the kitchen, kitchen sink. Oh, so wow. can, yeah. So it became a really difficult lockdown from a mobility perspective. Um, yeah. and then obviously like not only could I not go shopping, but even if I could, I couldn't because how was I going to do that on crutches? How was I going to carry my shopping home? I don't have a car. Um, you know, I couldn't mm. take a taxi because technically it's not safe to do it. Um, so I think there was a lot of sort of, um, I think people with disabilities who might be isolated because they're living on their own, um, who might or might not have mobility or significant dependency issues, or even if they don't, you know, I think a, from what I'm hearing, a lot of people struggled mm. um, because their traditional support networks fell away. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe even still now, you know, like with, well, in England, you sort of out of lockdown, right? But a lot of vulnerable people still aren't getting help. Yeah. Or even it's not just getting help, but it's also they're scared of going out because mm. you hear all of these messages and you're not sure whether or not it's safe to go out again. Um, you know, I've done one trip to a garden center and it was lovely. I mean, it was genuinely felt, <laughs> I felt like a human being for the first time in two months because I'd gone out. Um, you know, the only time of, aside from going to hospital, God knows how many times in the last month and two, um, I've literally just been, um, I've been home. Right. You know, yeah. With no, even, no guests, no company. No, I mean, in the recent, my, my fiance is now coming over because I genuinely need the help. So we've sort of mm. you said like, even though technically he's coming in, he, it falls under the caring responsibility, the caring yeah. rule. So we've sort of gone, uh, cause I spent eight weeks trying to do, do everything on my own and I just couldn't do it anymore. So, um, he's now coming over on a regular basis to help me, but that's the height of it. Um, yeah. And, and I have you, a patio, so I can meet somebody two meters away on my uh, patio. Ah, okay, that's quite nice. Yeah. And um, are you vulnerable to the coronavirus because of your history with cancer and your sort of Im immune system, or some something else? Well, we're not sure why I'm entirely vulnerable to coronavirus. I have asthma, and at one point in time, there was a thinking that people with asthma were incredibly vulnerable to coronavirus, um, regardless of what type of asthma you have. Um, then they sort of staged it and. Um, but I had a really bad cough, possibly coronavirus in February. And, um, as a consequence of how badly I degraded in February, um, like it took me quite a while to recover, um, uh, my stamina and things like that. Um, the, the GPs were 
the GPs at the time were convinced and still are convinced it was bronchitis, but they were really mm. convinced that if a bacterial bronchitis like that can do something, can get me down that quickly, they mm. didn't want me catching COVID because yeah. while none of my conditions, and aside from now a blood clot, are life-threatening at the moment, they all, um, you know, if one of the conditions sort of just destabilizes a little bit, they do become life-threatening. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, so what are your conditions? What's, um, what's so what, what do I have? So I'm missing my right arm below the elbow. So some <laughs> interesting logistical issues about carrying things. Uh, I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So I have joints. My, I have, it's a connective tissue disorder, which means uh, my, my joints essentially can slip out of place spontaneously. Most of the time it's under control because I climb. Um, and the climbing helps strengthen my muscles and activate them, which means my joints, for the most part, um, and my joints and my pain are under control. With lockdown, the change in activity levels has meant my joints are a lot less stable. Hence why my knee popped out in the first mm. 10 days, because I got up from a kitchen chair after working and that was it. Oh, I just stood up. Yeah. Um, and so that, that you know, puts you more at risk because um, you're simply just not activating the same way as you need mm. to holistically. Uh, I have a history of cancer and oh. then I have query inflammatory bowel disease. I definitely have some sort of issue, but now we're thinking it's more along the lines of celiac disease, um, mm. which has progressed because we didn't know I had celiac. And so I kept eating gluten mm. and it's caused multiple other complications in my body. But hopefully if it is celiac, I can start mm, avoiding what I need yeah. to avoid and eventually heal a little bit. So mm. I'm quite excited about that actually. Um, and yeah, that's, that's mainly me. Um, uh, just a complicated person really do you feel do you feel like your knowledge of biology and medicine is just really really high for a non-doctor well it is funny I when I went to A&E the last time um they were like oh my god you know so much about your conditions about the medications you're not supposed to have and all the rest of it and I'm like well yeah because I've got kind of a rare combination of problems and mm. so as a consequence if I don't know what I'm talking about then I might get given the wrong antibiotic or something like that. And I can tell them already what I react better to. So yeah, it, the doctors have definitely noticed this trip, this, this, this pandemic round, they're getting a lot more comments of, wow, you really know your stuff. Um, mm. Which I think has been helpful because if anything, um, you know, they're stressed. They've got a lot of different things to think about. If I can come in at least knowing roughly what I think mm. the problem might be, um, or at least with yeah. a symptom diary, that's always helpful to them. Yeah. And so you mentioned that climbing helps your conditions, especially the connective tissue disorder. Yeah. When did you start climbing and you know, what does climbing usually look like for you in a non-lockdown situation? So I actually started climbing by accident. Um, I actually um, went on a school trip once when I was about eight and there was a climbing wall and we got to try it and I loved it. Came home to my parents and my parents said, too dangerous, you're not doing it. At the time I was doing martial arts, I kept up with martial arts and um, had to stop martial arts when I was mid-teens due to EDS in my joints, causing them to destabilize. And then subsequently, because of the change in activity levels, my joints destabilized and I started falling very sick. Um, then I 23, had cancer. And after I'd had cancer, my left arm, which is sort of my normal arm, for all normal inverted commas arm, um, kind of got really impacted from the treatment. So started having some complications and I was struggling to, you know, do things like wash my hair, 
blow dry my hair, put my socks on. So real problems like dexterity, strength, fatigue. And one of my really good friends who's a climber went, well, you're having massive issues with your left arm. That's not good for you in terms of your long-term outlook, in terms of being independent and stuff. And frankly, you can barely walk five minutes without being out of breath because you're so unfit post-treatment. You've been struggling to find a sport ever since you stopped karate nearly 10 years ago. Um, you know, you've tried everything under the sun and it's just not inspired you the same way as karate used to. You not find your zone. You always wanted to try climbing why don't we go? And I said, you've got to be insane. Like one, I have no idea how I'll even do my harness up because I can't grip. Two, I'm going to look really silly because I'm going to fall a lot. Um, three, it's scary to fall. Uh, and four, I could barely climb as a, like an eight-year-old doing a little school. You think I can do it with like one and a half arms, one of which isn't functioning properly and a body that's kind of wrecked. And she's like, well, you know, what's the worst that can happen? You go and you don't enjoy it. Best thing is you go and you find something that changes your life. All right, okay, I'll take you on that. And I went, what about parents? And they went, she went, well, you're an adult now. They can't say anything. Okay, that's a really good <laughs> argument too. So I went and um, I tried a slab and God, I, I must have been a three, maybe a two plus. It was a really easy slab in today, in what I would consider today's terms. And oh god I didn't even get to the top I might have got four or five moves in but and it was exhausting I'm not kidding I was four or five moves in and I was done for the day but there was a moment when I was on the wall and I was actually balanced and I was trying to work out how to reach something on my right side and at the time obviously I didn't know how to do that and it just that sort of mental engagement it made me forget that I was ill it made me forget that I'd had health issues it kind of just made me feel human again and it was that, it was that zone. It was just finding me on the wall. You know, the wall doesn't judge me for who I am. It's just a puzzle and it was lovely. And it was that feeling actually that made me get motivated to get to an, a supervised gym program in the hospital to get fit again. And, and so I'd come back to climb every two, three months with my friend for a couple of hours. Again, not managing more than maybe a route maybe you have a route. It was never more than that. And then I moved to London. Um, a couple of years after moving to London and having not climbed. Um, was this from Luxembourg or from? Yeah, I was living yeah. in Luxembourg when I started climbing. And then I moved to London, a couple of years living in London, realized I really missed it. Um, really missed the sport. Missed that sort of, just that feeling of freeness, really. Um, that feeling of, I can do something. Um, because I think what I really liked was even if one approach to trying a, a problem on the wall wouldn't work, there were so many millions of other approaches that you could really adapt it for anybody, really. Um, so, yeah, I did like a little taster course to learn how to belay and do my figure of eight. Because then I figured at least if I wanted to climb, I could I could be independent climbing. Mm -hmm. And then I moved in at my previous flatmate. And one of the things we both realized was we both wanted to climb. Both of us were pretty much beginners. I at least knew how to do my figure of eight so I could teach her. Yay, <laughs> celebration. And so we decided to go to the wall and be bad together. And that was kind of our intention. It was going to be a social thing with no judgment. And um, around that time, uh, I found out there were 
paraclimbing nationals, so climbing competitions for disabled climbers in the UK. And I thought, oh my God, this is a thing. Because I used to compete in martial arts and I used to compete in swimming as a kid. So competitive sports was something that always attracted me. And I went, hey, I haven't actually trained in anything in 10 years. And I haven't tried anything at a high level in 10 years. And my body has significantly changed in that time. And I've been pretty sedentary and been pretty unwell. But, you know, what happens if I try? And so I tried. And that same year, I ended up ranking second in the UK in my category. And that's pretty (laughs) much it. I have had a coach now for four years. I love training. I have so many health setbacks, it's not even funny. But um, the one thing I found about climbing is that regardless of how poor my health might be on a given day, there's always something available at the wall I can climb. Even Mm -hmm. if it means climbing a three on a given day. And I know when I go back to climbing again properly after lockdown, I will be on threes, frankly, for a little while because I'm too unstable to climb anything harder than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I'm gonna have to learn how to climb and not bruise myself because of the blood thinners. But it, that's the thing, it's, it's, there's something there and it's very grounding for me. Mm. It's my escape from the world. Mm. So it's really sort of like a mental health thing more than it's physical health as well, but it's, there's a huge mental health component there as well. Yeah. And even emotional health. Uh, most of my friends are at the climbing wall. Uh, most of the friends mm. that I have in the UK are, are from my climbing life. Um, mm. I met my fiance through climbing. Mm. He so proposed at the climbing wall. <laughs> so all, in, for all <laughs> intents and purposes, um, you know, we have an indoor wall at home. So for all intents and purposes, climbing is our life. Mm. I, I read something that you wrote and it was, it was along the lines of, you know, I'm, I might be the most diverse person you'll ever meet. And we all know that climbing's not a very diverse sport. <laughs> How was it for you entering into climbing as a complete beginner with a disability, um, being from a minority background? um, You know, how was it? And wearing a headscarf. Um, Mm. I think it's probably that was the that was the thing that probably scared me the most. It was wearing the headscarf. I was going to make sure I was safe, um, you know, because I top rope. So how was I going to make sure I didn't get anything tangled in a top rope and a belay device? That was my first concern. Um, and yes, there have been significant changes to my headscarf since I started climbing in terms of what I wear at the wall and how I wear it. Um, I think when I started, it was... See, the thing is, when I grew up in Luxembourg, most of my friends were white. Um, mm-hmm. In the school I was in, there was only six Pakistani people across the entire all years. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't exactly ever in a majority ever in my life. Right. And while while there is a, 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 a discomfort internally that I have with that in the sense that there aren't people around me that look like me, mm. it's something I've had no choice but to deal with. Mm. Um, what I do find, and, and my parents taught me to deal with it, which meant I'm quite okay for the most part going, being a minority in a room. I would say though, it would have been lovely having somebody else to talk to and ask, how did you do your headscarf or having another paraclimber around, even if they're not the same disability to actually at least Mm. um, talk about the challenges. And I have to say my coach is incredible. And I I heard it in my first year of climbing with him actually practice climbing one handed and one and a half handed so that he, he could then show me because he's my height, which meant he could then 
I had no excuse if he could manage it, basically. Mm. Um, and I, I really appreciate that because it meant he really put himself in my shoes mm. um, to, to test for stuff. Yeah. Uh, it would have been nice having other brown people, other black people, um, mm. other people with disabilities, whatever the disability, being around, just yeah. having that sense of community. Mm, yeah so the castle is the wall that you climb at right so did you feel like they were welcoming welcoming despite the fact that they didn't look like you and I mean if anything council have been hugely welcoming um I mean it's no secret that they sponsor me now but um they have been you know their the shop has gone out of the way to try and find ways to adapt things for me uh duty managers have brought in various belay devices to see. So it was a point where we were trying to work out how I could lead belay mm. and I couldn't do it on a Grigri, but we found a way to do it with another device. Mm. Um, and so they would actually volunteer to be top roped while I learned to lead belay <laughs> for them, you know, so, yeah. you know, they were putting themselves out of their comfort zones for me. Um, and they've helped me network as well in the sense of like, if they've seen other paraclimbers around, they've helped introduce mm. us and or since I you know since I've co-founded Paraclimbing London um they've really helped you know they've mm. really supported us with that and That's so great. many walls in London have but in particular Castle I mean they've given us an extra room um to to help people relax in they hosted the first para block fest so there's a lot of stuff where I got a lot of support from Castle mm. That's great um, and so how does the paraclimbing work? Are there different categories? And do, do you want to just explain a little bit about the different categories and how it works? Because I've actually yeah. never been to a paraclimbing event. So paraclimbing categories actually changed in the last couple of years. Um, previously, they used to include all disabilities, phys um, sort of physical, uh, neurological, and, and anything that could be sort of learning disability or hearing or things like that. Um, that was sort of a really wide and quite all-inclusive um, set of categories. In the last couple of years, um, the system here has changed to align with international standards and sort of more Olympic-style standards, right. uh, which has meant that they've now only including physical and neurological disabilities. Okay. Uh, and therefore, um, and what they've done is they've, they, they now have an open category for anybody who doesn't fit into right. um, okay. Uh, any of the other categories. So yeah, so we in 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 paraclimbing now. If you're at a competition, you have categories based on upper limbs, lower limbs, um, and they're split into two categories based on how much of the limb you're missing or how right. many you might be missing. Yeah. Um, because frankly, while somebody missing their right or left arm um, can still compete against each other, if you're missing your elbow, it makes a huge difference. Mm. If you're missing it all the way to your shoulder, it makes a huge difference. Mm. Um, so I have my elbow, I can take, I can really grip. Mm. I mean, I can hold full body weight and do a pull up now. I can campus off my right elbow. Um, can't campus off my left arm, but I can campus <laughs> off my right elbow, it's crazy. Um, so, you know, it makes a huge difference if I'm competing against somebody missing their elbow, for instance. Um, so yeah. there's a cutoff at the elbow for arms, uh, legs as well. There's a, there's a, I think it's, you have to have both legs, um, missing to be in a different category. Then they'll have uh, range and power. Um, so that can cover anybody who's had a stroke, brain injury, multiple right. sclerosis, anything neurological where you have all of your limbs, mm. but they might not be functioning to the best yeah. uh, of their ability. Um, visually impaired. Um, and that's also broken down into multiple categories based on how, how impaired okay. you are. 
Um, and I think that covers everybody. Um, mm. I think through the categories. Quite a lot of categories, isn't it? And it seems like you, how you would divide it up, you know, it must be so difficult to find there the division. There are criteria. There are international criteria set out by like... Ah, okay. Panel. So they just copy that, do they? Yeah, they copy that. I mean... There is an agreement at international standard among the athletes that the criteria need to be redone because it does leave quite a lot of, um, uh, you know, a lot of people might be on the borderline between two categories and actually where should you mm. place them? What if you have somebody who has two conditions or multiple conditions? Um, you know, where do you place them? Yeah. You, in theory, you place them in the category they're most um, disabled by in terms of climbing. Right. So okay. if somebody is visually impaired and missing a limb, you would place them in missing a limb. Right. Okay. But Obviously, it's going to be much harder. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the thing. So, for instance, in terms of the upper arm category, I'm the only one who competes with multiple significantly mm. impairing conditions besides yeah. my arm. Um, you know, and they probably, the other conditions probably play a, play a way bigger impact on my health than, say, my arm. Mm. Um, but, you know, that's it. I have to, I, if I want to compete, I have to compete in that field. Yeah. And what's the sort of the, the scene like, you know, are people very welcoming and it's got a very like fun attitude or are people sort of bickering about categories and how disabled each one is and, you know, how, how sort of positive and friendly is the scene? I think in terms of the community, it's incredibly friendly. Like everybody cheers everybody on. Um, we had Paraclimbing London turned up at the national last, last national we had this year. And because we, have, we had a lot of us there, the whole lot of us were cheering our lot on. But we were cheering everybody on because that's mm. how it works in Paraclimbing comps. You cheer everybody. Um, and that's, that's what's lovely about Paraclimbing. It's, it, from what I've heard, it's one of the more welcoming experiences. Yes, there will always be some tension around categorization, especially for people who are borderline or who might have variable conditions as well. So say, for instance, you have um, multiple sclerosis or something, and on some days you're really functional and some days you're mm. really not. Um, or you have variable Ehlers-Danlos. So on some days I'm completely fine. And on some days, you know, I have joints that have popped out. For me, again, doesn't matter because I'm in the limb category, but for somebody who's in a range and power category, there can be sort of, um, you know, what happens if this person was in a harder category to start with in the year and then ends up in a lower category at the end of the year? Well, actually, that's based on a conversation between their doctors, the medical team, the assessment team, and themselves. None of us really have a right to judge based because we don't know, we're not in their shoes. Um, mm. And it's about keeping that mindset in place. Yeah. Yes that person moving category might have impacted your score in the competition because obviously you're now competing against them or not competing against them or whatever. Uh, you might've changed the dynamic of your competition, but at the same time, that is the nature of power climbing. Yeah. And any yeah. power sport for that matter. Mm. And you know, it's sort of like, it, it does kind of bring into light how arbitrary competing is in general, doesn't it? Cause although sort of, abled body climbers don't have quite so many variables at play um there still are a lot of variables of course and um sort of like pitching people against one another on one day doesn't really say that much about someone's climbing no exactly and it, i mean heck i mean you got a woman on her period climbing will have such a different performance and I'm not saying worse or better, but it will be different mm. than somebody who's not or somebody who's in the sort you know, depending on where they are in their monthly cycle can yeah. really impact how 
what type of training they should be doing on a given week, let alone whether they should be competing internationally, for instance. Yeah, definitely. I just, my, it's my brain that affects me during bits of my cycle. I just have this, like, this such a higher stress response. It's, it's crazy. My joints get looser in the week right, before yeah. my cycle. So it's because um, the extra estrogen in your body. Mm. So I am very unstable in the week before. And in, in fact, mm. we have to re-deload the training that week as well. Yeah. We have to really work on stuff that's not dynamic, that can't put me at risk because just walking will sprain my ankles at that point. Right, yeah. Because that affects people without um, EDS. Just other, other women have that yeah. happening to them, don't they? With the, I've, read, I've read stuff about higher injury rates during um, certain times of the month. Well, you set up paraclimbing, right? Yeah. And you're kind of like an advocate for disability. Um, and, you know, this is something I'm really not very well versed in. But, you know, what, what's your sense of kind of um, our society's response to disability? You know, what's good? What could be better? Um, and then also like the language around disability as well, because there was a movement at one point to change to differently abled, right? Yeah. And this is a bit controversial, like some people are pro that, some people are against and just be nice to get a sense of sort of like where you sit with kind of like the politics of disability. So I think I'll probably go with the language question first and then I'll go back to the society question. Yeah, sorry, it's quite a mismatch um, of a question. You no, know, I just realised that it's just, they're both really kind of loaded questions as well. Um, sorry. So, no, it's good. I like to really dig. Um, <laughs> uh, go for it, chuck it along. It's fine, you're not the first person who's asked. Um, I have to say, I used to call myself differently abled. Okay. And, um, and, uh, and that's because when it was only my arm that was a difference, I used to not see myself as disabled because I was born with my arm. It's never something I had to adapt to. And therefore, I never saw myself different as a consequence right, in terms yeah. of. And I can pretty much do everything everybody else could. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I might do it slightly differently and maybe slightly in an unorthodox way, but I would get it done. Yeah. Uh, it's when my other health conditions started playing a part and started really changing how um, mobile I was and how independent I became. That's when I started feeling disabled. But mm. um, I like saying personally, I have dis conditions that disable me, but I'm not disabled. Right. Um, okay. Aside from when they disable me. Um, okay. Uh, you know, I'm so not it's like less a temporary able. condition. Yeah. I, I like saying, I personally like saying that, you know, my conditions might disable me, but that doesn't mean I'm less able, I'm less capable as a person. So often, a lot of people, the, work, the, the issue around disability is that it's often associated by people who aren't necessarily disabled um, or, or differently able to whoever you want to call yourself. Um, it's often associated with being less able, less capable, yeah. whether that's on the intellectual side or in the independent side. And often assumptions mm -hmm. are made that, you know, you have a disability, therefore you are less able to function in life, have mm -hmm. a job, um, yeah. um, have children, manage your own medical mm -hmm. needs do everything and I think that's where the tension is around that set of words um yeah. it's the assumptions that, yeah. that go around it and I and and hence why even I've changed my wording because the disability community has actually really come out against the word differently abled because they mm. consider it to be a little bit like if you think about something uh you know uh, I, I can't think of a better word but almost like able washing whitewashing disability it's a nice way of saying disability to say differently abled is a nice way of saying it. it's kind of hiding the truth 
yeah and it's also like you kind of in order to advocate for people's rights and protections and um funding and all of the rest of it you need to kind of call something something don't you exactly and i'm i'm all for just saying it is what it is Mm. um because at the end of the day um we are talking about people's health um we are talking about people's quality of life we are talking Mm. about people's access to services we are talking about people's access to life in in as a whole if we don't start calling it for what it is, we're never going to get to where we need to get to um, mm. in terms of, you know, equity and equality. Yeah. Um, so it is definitely uh, different words are differently loaded. And I, you know, as I said, I used to call myself differently abled. And, and sometimes depending on who I'm talking to, I will still switch mm. between different terms, um, depending on what the message is that I'm trying to get across. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, so you you feel free to switch between different terms, but yes. for those of us who are, I don't know what the word is, <laughs> the rest of us, <laughs> yes. normally abled, but you don't want to say normal, do you? Because you know it's so difficult to not load the language. It's so difficult. Um, I, I would say if you're talking to somebody who has a disability, because um, some people are not really comfortable with the word disability themselves because they might have acquired that disability later in life. Mm-hmm. And they might not see themselves disabled. People who are neurodiverse, so on the autistic spectrum, for instance, or mm-hmm. dyspraxia, dyslexia, they might just see it as an asset or they might see it as mm-hmm. they're different, but that's not disabling. Mm-hmm. So you really have to go with the person and how they feel. It's, it's imagine if we were in the LGBT plus community, you would go with what people tell you to call them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think yeah. it's the same concept yeah. of disability. Respect the identity that they choose and respect that it might change based on how they're feeling about their own issues mm-hmm. as well. I yeah. find at times that I'm feeling very disabled. This lockdown was definitely teaching mm. me that. But at times I feel very enabled by my disabilities mm, and yeah. empowered by them mm. because they help me on the wall in a way that, you know, because I think out of the box when I'm climbing in ways that my counterparts on the climbing wall don't. Yeah, and, and more than that, not to put words in your mouth, but you you seem like a very empowered person, right? And that must be, in some sense, you know, you you are who you are as a result of your disabilities or um, yeah, they certainly shaped my life. They are um, they are one part of the tapestry of my life, mm-hmm. but they are there, and I'm going to acknowledge them for what they are. But that's me, and that, as I said, I was born. I have a very different journey to some people because I was born having a difference. Mm. Um, but it's, it's also really interesting because the charity that supported my parents when I was born used to say, it's not disability, it's ability that counts. That's their slogan. It still is their slogan today. Um, and I didn't really realize I was disabled until somebody called me that when I was 12. Right. Because they thought I was less able. Okay. And that's partly why I refused to use that word because it was... I found it was a perception from somebody else putting it on me, making mm-hmm. assumptions about me. Um, and it wasn't until very, you know, in the last few years, I've become much more vocal in this space that I've sort of changed how I think about those words. Mm. And, and also because my own health has changed. Um, yeah. That I've been okay with being, I would call disability fluid, in, I guess, in my own identity. Right, yeah. Um, yeah all intents and purposes that's kind of how I am it's funny sort of fluid identity isn't it because identity sort of by its definition is non-fluid in a way is but you just keep reinventing yourself don't you day by day by day yeah exactly and the thing is 
you know, on some days you might feel that that word is appropriate for you, but you know, you, you might read a book, you might hear somebody else's story, you might hear how somebody else refers to themselves, and you might find that that's a better way of wording it for yourself, for your mental health. You might find that actually you're comfortable with the word disability because you are disabled, um, mm -hmm. and you do genuinely need help. But you might find actually you have a condition, but you're perfectly fine, and you don't want to mm -hmm. call it a disability. Yeah, for you sure. might qualify under the Equality Act for support, but you don't feel you need it. Mm. Therefore, do you consider yourself disabled? Yeah, that's, that's for that person to decide, and that's why I say, you know, I'd say you're, you know, everybody's going to get the wording wrong at some point in time. Mm. That's perfectly okay. It's about learning from it, and it's about also respecting that you might get the wording right with one person, but you might get it wrong with the other person because they identify themselves slightly differently, mm. and that's perfectly okay. It's just being sensitive to it. Yeah. And how do you feel about sort of um, the, the, the response or, you know, some of the beliefs that other people have around people who are differently abled or disabled? Um, and, you know, you're, you're quite vocal on social media about how you'd like people to see you and, and other differently abled um, and disabled people. Um, you know, what do you feel like needs to change there, if anything? So I think the perception of people with disabilities definitely needs to change. In the media, it seems to be a mixture of people who are super inspirational Olympians who can overcome their disability because obviously disability is something to be overcome, right? No, um, sorry, it's not. I mean, it's a part of your life. You're never going to like defeat a part of your life, right? Mm. Um, so, and especially if it's a permanent thing. Um, yeah. So, you know, either you're an Olympian who can, you know, get loads and loads of medals, but then we forget how much support they might receiving be receiving as well. We forget the disability side of things. We forget they might have carers we forget they might have a support network. We forget they might be needing a lot of medical support. And then you have the scroungers, the people who don't overcome their disability because they can't be bothered. Um, and, and that tends to be how the media portrays it. And I think that really needs to change because mm. the majority of people will be in the middle of that. Yeah. Um, they will have disabilities. They might or might not be successful in managing their lives with their disabilities. Mm. They might need more support. They might need less. Mm. Um, they might just be working their way around it and, mm. you know, and needing to just work out how comfortable they are with themselves. They, and it's just, it's about portraying the normal person, but of course that doesn't attract the media. Does yeah. it? doesn't it's not clickbaity. It's not clickbaity. <laughs> so I think that the media really needs to change. Um, mm. and that's something I've been I've been trying to propose when I've had like opportunities with the media to propose to them and it's just been shut down. So it's fascinating because mm. it's not clickbaity enough. Yeah. Um, in terms of perceptions of people with disabilities, I think, I think that's getting better. Um, since I've been in the disability field, it certainly seems to be improving a little bit. Um, I think people with disabilities get forgotten about when it comes to society sometimes, that, that seems to be a bit of a hindsight thought. Mm. Uh, for instance, the shopping slots uh, during the COVID crisis, mm. like, um, you know, they, they prioritized people uh, who were clinically vulnerable to COVID, but forgot the other people who already rely on mm. online shopping slots who suddenly couldn't get any, who don't have any other support because it was lockdown. Um, yeah. I was one of them. Um, mm. So I think that was seriously forgotten about. Um, you know, we at the moment in the UK, 
and this is something I love about the UK is that, that under the Equality Act, it's the way it works is you have a disability as long as you think it is disabling for you. Mm. So you you know you can decide. Oh, it's kind of like you. It's it's kind of like you might have. So if you've had cancer, mm. you are permanently covered on the Equality Act in terms of disability, regardless whether you have recovered or not. So I had right. cancer nine years ago. I'm recovered, but I'm still covered under the Equality Act as having a disability. But, you know, I don't count, consider my cancer disabling. I don't need to use the Equality mm. Act for support with it. But So would, would that entitle you then to have benefits that would be big enough for you to live without working? I don't think any benefits are in the UK are good enough for living <laughs> without working. Um, no, the cancer doesn't impact my health in that sense, um, aside from my left arm issues. So cancer on its own would not be helping me to get benefits you have to really prove that it's impacting you um impacting your quality of life properly but in terms of for instance at work in terms of needing to take time out for your appointments right. you could definitely get support to do that because okay. it would be illegal to not let you get mm. your appointments done even if you have to do it during working hours and things like that so it's that type of is that type okay, of support that you right. would definitely be able to rely on you get to rely on statutory support and but you know somebody who had cancer 15 years ago who's had no significant impact to their life bar their yearly check potentially or something like that um they're you know they they won't consider themselves disabled but they are mm. covered under the equality act as having a disability mm. so it really is kind of very fluid as a definition mm. and that's what i like about the uk kind of you can really decide when if you have a condition at what point you think it the equality act applies to you um right. and what, at what point you decide you need the support and okay you obviously have to prove that you need the support and things like that so that it doesn't get abused mm. but at the same time there is that I don't think it's a bad system yes it needs some tweaking um mm. but um with the sort of COVID issues because the shops for instance were looking at people who had a listed disability under you know they had a certain medical condition which meant they had to receive protection um it meant that anybody else who technically did qualify under the equality act kind of got forgotten um yeah. and it wasn't just shops it was all sorts of things um and unfortunately that just you know it was a bit of a shame really um that it felt like people with disabilities were a bit of a hindsight mm. um, yeah um and hopefully that will change in the future but i still think that's kind of still a problem when people are thinking about i don't know sports centers are we thinking about access when we create those sports centers are we thinking mm. about access when we are and i'm not just talking wheelchair access i'm talking sensory access for people on the autistic mm. spectrum who might need a calmer area are we thinking about people who are blind are we thinking about people who are hearing impaired are we thinking about essentially what is the purple pound the billions of pounds that aren't being spent by people with disabilities because they can't access services or shops. Mm. Yeah. Are we thinking about the economic benefits? Mm. Um, it's the same people, Muslims. Um, Muslims, especially women Muslims, they can't always find what they like in the shops because it doesn't cover enough, it doesn't cover the right way, or it doesn't work the right mm. way, or it doesn't, doesn't quite meet the needs. So therefore you just don't shop. <laughs> but if you find people who can design things that actually work for your needs, either from a disability or from a religious mm. perspective, suddenly you'll, you'll start shopping. People yeah. want to spend money. It's just that if you don't have anything that meets your needs, you won't. Mm. It's a problem with capitalism, isn't it, really? Because it's just, it's always for the majority. It's never for the... 
but they've forgotten how big the minority is. Mm. 20% of the English population has a declared disability. Wow, that's really high. That's an undercount if it's only declared, right? Yeah. Um, I can't remember the exact number. That's really high. Very high. It's 20% and that's the latest statistics from Scope. there's, I think, 9% of the current working age population has a disability. I think. Okay. I'm wow. not entirely sure, but it's, it's high. Um, so think about it. Spending power? Yeah. It's high. Mm. It's a huge amount of the population that has the ability to spend quite a lot of cash and help the economy, um, if we thought about it. If, if shops and sports centres and, and all of these places thought about it. Mm. Uh, and just made it that little bit easier and I think that's yeah that's where the perception needs to change Um, okay yeah and and what is it about your work that you feel there's avenues for you to make some positive change my work as an advocate yeah um so I think I do what I do is one try to teach people that they shouldn't be limited by what others say about them which is something I used to experience a lot. And I still do to some extent that when somebody says something potentially limiting, I do struggle with getting out of that, that limitation. Mm. So I don't know somebody, you know, somebody used to say you can't do something on the wall because you're not able enough. Um, And that's happened a few times. I used to believe it. Mm. Um, And then, you know, you're getting to your own headspace and then you find a way to not work it out. So a lot of my work has been around teaching people to essentially realize that they can be way more than they believe. Yeah. Uh, or way more than they, they've been taught to believe. But then, and, yeah, I also talk to people who are absolutely able, who are limited by their own thoughts mm-hmm. as well, whether that's fear, fear of failure, fear of trying, all of that. Because um, mm-hmm. I think that applies to anybody, frankly, not just people in the disability community. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, a, a lot of what you, what I've read of what you've said is, is really similar to some of the stuff I teach, you know, like stepping outside your comfort zone, um, you know, even after trauma. I don't know how, how you've experienced this, but how, how, like climbing has this really powerful way of, of really teaching you that on this experiential level, you know, it's like, oh, this thing scared me and I'm not gonna, um, you know, push too far outside my comfort zone, but I realized that if I'm going to overcome this thing that scares me, I have to dip outside my comfort zone gradually, incrementally, and, and that's how we, we build it back up. I've, yeah, I've got this really fascinating experience of climbing, and I have done for now three years odd. Um, I'm very happy to launch myself off anything when I'm on a top rope. I'm potentially even happy doing that on lead when I'm in practice. Um, so at the moment I'm totally out of practice. I wouldn't even go near a clip, but you know, put me on lead in a, in a while and I'll be fine again. Bouldering. I can't step off the thing backwards. If I've been up 10 centimeters, been trying to deal with it for four years, still can't do it. There's some sort of really big phobia going on. Um, where even if I'm on a VB, I am struggling like proper mental struggle, trembling body, everything going on full on panic trauma um having to like keep i keep uh, a little lion with me simba my lion uh he's my mascot and if i know i have to boulder simba's in my bag (laughs) along with a snack to ground myself and potentially a cup of tea for my coach because he knows i'm going to be terrified um it's really 
wacky how the minute I'm on a rope, I will, I'm not kidding, I will launch and I will do pretty darn scary stuff sometimes. Um, but put me near a bouldering wall, it won't happen. It is more dangerous for you though, right? Bouldering with an yeah. EDS. I think there's an inherent, there's I think I've, consequences. Probably, yeah, I think there's a part of my very rational me going, please don't do this because you might like really hurt yourself. Mm-hmm. But even a, a 10 centimeter backwards walk off a hold surely shouldn't be that scary. I mean, it's 10 centimeters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's gotten to a point where my comfort zone is tiny. Mm-hmm. Um, there's sort of this, there's a difference though, isn't there? Like from intellectually knowing that something's okay versus what your body's telling you. Absolutely. Um, there's, there's always this Mitch match and I'm, I'm, with my coaching, it's constantly trying to explain to people or get them to understand that um, just because you know something that's safe is in, from an intellectual standpoint, it's not going to convince you on this sort of subconscious level just to just switch that fear off. Um, no, no, exactly. And, and this is, that's the thing in, in, in top roping, even on lead, I can rationally move myself and not switch the fear off. The fear will always be there, but to sort of acknowledge the fear and then gradually come out of my comfort zone and build. And if I haven't exercised the comfort zone in a while, okay, it might grow smaller for a bit, but then it will rebuild or if my health is impacted or if say, you know, I've got different tensions going on, maybe a lot going on at the office or things like that then, you know, my comfort zone might be smaller. But bouldering, it just doesn't shift. <laughs> it just doesn't move. <laughs> um, it doesn't matter how much I try. It doesn't matter how good a day I'm having. Um, it's stuck. Uh, currently oh stuck. Maybe, um, maybe you should go to one of my bouldering fair falling talks. I'll send, you, I'll send you a coffee if you want. Might need might to, I might need to think about that. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you already know everything, though, that's in it. But um, That's the funny thing. Help. I can teach people how to fall off boulders, and I've actually run sessions to help people fall off boulders and to help people face their own fears on boulders. Because apparently I'm now really good at teaching people, uh, but I just can't do it myself. <laughs> so I've learned so much about it in the last four years yeah. that I can actually teach because I can relate to everything they're feeling. Um, I just can't do it myself. Yeah. Um, it was an incredibly hypocritical workshop. It was great. <laughs> no demonstrations. Sorry, guys. <laughs> no, no demonstrations, but I'll happily push you up the wall myself. And <laughs> yeah. all four of them came out less scared of bouldering. <laughs> and I was like, God, I wish oh, well. I could have done that. At, le- at least it was good for those. <laughs> for at least people. I'm living vicariously through others. <laughs> yeah. Nuts. Um, so I, I once read one of your posts at, and it was something along the lines of like, don't call me inspiring. And I remember we had a little back and forth, didn't we? It was social yeah. media where I was like, why not? Why can't people call you inspiring? And um, it would just be interesting to hear from you why that doesn't sit well with you. Um, so inspiring is a loaded word for the people, people in the disability community, frankly. It's, it's, it's called inspiration porn for us. And, and I never used to understand why it was a word that made me uncomfortable until I found out about this concept and realized I could finally name this uncomfortableness. Mm. And so essentially, um, again, because of the media portrayal of, you know, people with disabilities have to overcome the disabilities. A lot of people, when they see us, um, you know, they sort of equate us getting out of bed and us even just functioning to be inspiring. Mm. And yes, in some cases, that genuinely is the case. You know, for mm-hmm. people who are really disabled, really struggling with their lives, depression, for instance, getting mm-hmm. out of your bed could actually be an inspiring task mm-hmm. because you are overcoming so much by doing that. But for the most part, getting out of bed, eating your breakfast and getting on with work, life is not really inspiring. 
Mm. And the issue I have with the word inspiring is I get called inspiring a lot. And about 90% of the time, it's not really for the best reason. Um, it's things like, oh my gosh, you climbed a three. Um, you know, when I might've been doing mm. a six B 20 minutes before. Um, yeah. And, and it's one of those things where I'm like, call me inspiring for something that there's inspiring the noun and inspiring the verb. And I go, if I'm inspiring you to do something different, mm. right? If, if something I have said in a post, if something I have done in a talk, if something I am doing on the wall has persuaded you or helped you or motivated you, or even got you thinking about how you climb or what you do in life, if that has helped you, I will accept the word inspiring without a problem. Mm. But isn't that what people mean, though? Aren't, don't they? Or are oh, they saying? God, yeah, no. Are they, are they saying inspiring because they just want to pay you a compliment? Like, what? What do you think yeah, the intention is there? I, I don't think the intention is wrong at all. I just think it's just maybe an overused word. Yeah. Um, and maybe not the most appropriate word. Um, is it maybe a bit sort of infantilizing? Maybe. Yeah, it's I sort mean, of like, or patronizing, maybe as well. It is because the problem is people can't imagine what they do. Is I can't imagine what what it's like living in your shoes. You know, so it's inspiring to hear you getting out of bed and having breakfast every day, and I'm like, uh huh, thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to take that. Basically, you're telling yeah. me my life is really crap, mm. and you're also telling me it's great that my life is crap, but I'm doing well about it. I'm not yeah. sure how I'm supposed to take that. Um, do you see what I mean? And that's kind yeah. of, it's, it's kind of, it feels a little bit, while it's well-intentioned, it can feel quite backhanded. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I get that. I am not somebody's inspiration just because they look at me, they find me inspiring, but they don't actually do anything about, they, it doesn't actually change anything about them. They just look at me, go, oh my God, that's so inspirational and carry on with their lives as normal. Um, that is inspiration yeah. for them. Um, mm-hmm. But I've had so many amazing comments from climbers when I've done takeovers or people who've come to me just generally having read a post or you know having chatted to me gone um I don't know this this happened just before lockdown I was um I'd had a really bad case of bronchitis in Feb and um I was too unfit to do normal training and I was getting really frustrated with it so my coach said why don't we just do dinos because it's not requiring a lot of breathing. It's just one big breath. You go, you do it, you come down, you have a rest. So great. Mm. And he put me on a crazy big dyno, probably bigger than I've done in a while. And I was like, are you sure? Because I've just been really ill. Um, you know, maybe not sure I'm at the comfort zone. Is that ready for it? And I freaked out. I freaked out on the wall because you know what? It was scary. And he kept me up there. And two, three attempts later, I nailed it. Uh, I not only did I nail it, I did it again to make sure I could nail it properly and it wasn't a fluke. And there was a few people watching me while they were climbing. And, and I got a message from one of them later said, having watched how you sort of faced your fears, dealt with the fact you were really uncomfortable also, but the amount of energy and determination you were putting into getting it right, it really motivated me. And I ended up climbing the hardest session I've ever done in a while. And that was mm. really inspiring. So thank you. And I just thought, that's really nice. Mm. I've helped, I've genuinely helped somebody. I've inspired somebody by, by essentially being badass mm. on the wall. Yeah. Um, and that for me, totally happy receiving that as a compliment. Yeah. Cause I think it is, it is all relative, isn't it? Because, you know, if, if I saw that, I'd probably find it inspiring, even though I could probably do that dino, right? It's not like you've done something that I can't do. It's just, 
whenever I watch anyone overcoming something that's difficult for them, it's like when I coach people, sometimes I'm coaching people that are climbing fives. I obviously climb a lot harder than five, right? But it's still really inspiring for me to watch them push past their comfort zone. And so sort of like how, I guess, well, you've already explained it, but it is a bit different when someone's got a disability and you're saying something is inspiring that where you've not actually pushed back outside your comfort zone, right? It's not actually been a struggle for you. And then that's maybe where the difference is. I think so. I think it's a bit like, okay, if it's obviously looking really easy um, to the person and maybe don't, maybe don't give me a standing applause when I've done a three. So that's happened a few times. And honestly, I try really hard not rolling my eyes um, because you know what? A three is a warm up for the most part, unless it's like, you know, as I said, when I go back to the wall and when it's safe to and whatever else, I'm pretty sure a three is going to be really hard and that's okay. Um, but it's, it's kind of that type of thing. It's kind of the, you know, it's about being sensitive to, to, to the person as well. And it's, it's about not overusing the word. It's about thinking, is it really inspiring or is it motivating? Is it, nice to see it's kind of is it um it's it's that type of thing and I don't know when I when I coach my paraclimbers or anybody for that matter because I've done quite a lot of coaching as well um and I'm coaching them and I see them you know do something you know I would easily climb without any challenge but it's difficult for them for whatever reason be it headspace Mm -hmm. be it mobility um just be it because they're new at climbing and again able or non-able climbers uh, in this case I find it inspiring that they keep trying mm-hmm. it motivates yeah. me to keep trying but I'm not necessarily yeah. going to tell them they're inspiring sometimes it's just like you could have just said well done you don't have to say oh my god you're inspiring yeah it's like a it's a bit sort of dramatic isn't it and and, to, um, and and I said it's something when you if I had a penny for every time I was called inspiring I'd have a mansion mm-hmm. by now right, I went yeah. to an event um that had nothing to do with, well, it was an event about sports, but it was a, a sort of a clothing event type thing. And I was in the queue waiting to get in with loads of other people who were like invited to the event. None of us knew each other. And then the minute they found out I was a climber, immediately, oh my God, you climb with one hand? That's so inspiring. Mm. They've never seen me climb. They didn't know who I was. Mm. Uh, and I'm like, well, why is it inspiring? Like, yeah. what's it, what, why is it inspiring? What, what is it? that inspires you the fact that you've never climbed before the fact that you've never seen climb somebody climb with one and a half hands Mm. or the fact that you find climbing scary um and that's kind of where I go oh overuse of the word um I feel like um I don't know I sort of got a bit of that just being a young girl climbing in the 10 well no 25 years ago (laughs) old but you know just um you know, lots of people were like, oh my God, well done. You did that so well. It's like so shocked that I could climb just because I was a young girl, which is when less women climbed. Um, I think that a lot of the time people don't know what to do when they see something that's not what they're used to, you know? It's just, you Absolutely. you aren't the norm, right? You, you, <laughs> and, um, you know, I mean that in a, in a, in a, in a, nicest possible way oh, no no I totally yeah I am totally not normal and that's totally fine I'm I think normal's boring so um yeah. I'm totally fine you're owning it normal. as the Americans say so totes yeah totes. um so you know I want to touch a little bit on this sort of idea of vulnerability versus victimhood you know it's just like 
there's nothing about you that says victim to me. Um, and I don't know if that's conscious on your behalf. Um, but there's also, it's sort of like, and this is the same for everyone, but, but maybe you've learned more about that with, with the stuff that you've struggled with is this, you know, sometimes we do have to accept how vulnerable we are. Um, and there's a sort of power in that. Um, but that's quite different from being a victim. And, you know, where, do, where does that sit with you sort of victimhood versus empowerment versus vulnerability? I think that's been a serious journey for me. So when I was growing up, um, cause I said, I only really had my arm as a, as a, as a difference. Uh, okay. Yes. I was a minority and all the rest of it, but in terms of visible, visible difference, um, they're all visible. I can't My arm was my only disability at the time. Um, and, and at that point I was just, you know, I was just me. Um, and life was fine. Um, when I started falling really sick, so between the ages of sort of 18 and 23, constant surgeries, not really understanding what was going wrong with my body, um, starting to really distrust my body, um, didn't like looking at myself in the mirror, still have issues with that to a certain extent today. Um, I was very much so in victimhood. Why me? What, what, what had caused me to get ill? All of that. Um, and I spent a long while in that, that, that headspace. And I have to say it was a very difficult headspace to be in. And it was also a very difficult headspace to get out. It was when I got my diagnosis. Um, and it was a very, I, the diagnosis, when I got my cancer diagnosis, it was a bit of a special way of getting it. Um, I had my first surgery, which we thought was a benign tumor. And I got told it was benign. And then three weeks later, I got the call to come into the doctor's office, not got told to bring family along with me or anybody. So I drove there on my own. It was a Saturday morning. I thought the doctor was just, it's Luxembourg. It's a small country. I thought the doctor was getting some of his patients out of the way before he went on holiday or something. I didn't think it was a, so I've been told it was benign. Um, went in and I kind of see it's, I'm the only person in the hospital and the doctor's the only person in the hospital. So literally it opened the hospital for me and um, the outpatient area and, you know, lets me know that I have cancer. And at that point, there was a real moment in my head where I'm going, oh my God, I've hit rock bottom. I mean, I don't think I can do anymore. I don't think I can cope with anything else. But then there was also survival instincts that literally went, oh my God, I'm going to have to do surgeries. At that point, we still didn't know. I hadn't been told yet that I was going to have to do chemo, radiotherapy and go through the whole shebang. Um, but there was a real, I, I, for all intents and purposes, call it enlightenment, call it transformation, call it what you want, where I moved from victimhood to, I need to get this done. I need to survive. I need to get through. I was in the middle of my master's as well. Um, and I need to, I need to, I just need to get on with it. It doesn't matter what I feel about it. Now is not the time. Right, well. to process and yeah I went through my entire cancer treatment not really processing what had happened to me I only really processed it once I moved to London when I was out of being living with my parents in seeing the same doctors who've known me since childhood and things like that it's really when I moved here that I started really investigating what I truly felt about myself and whether I was a victim or I wasn't and then I realized just how much of an impact both positive and negative, my health issues have had on me. Mm. Um, and yes, don't get me wrong, it's really challenging living with the health issues I've 
have. I mean, two years ago was when my health started really declining again. And I had 40 odd hospital appointments that year. Last, I thought that was a high. Last year, I ended up with 65. This year, already in lockdown, I'm in sort of 30. Um, and that's only two months. So, and I already had stuff before then. So this year is definitely looking to beat last year, unfortunately. And it's hard. It's like a full-time mm. job navigating the hospitals and the appointments mm. and keeping a track of it. And, you know, being your own doctor to a certain extent and, you know, stiff upper lip and all the rest of it. But there's, I wouldn't be the person I am today without the trials and tribulations that I've been through. I wouldn't have learned that it's okay to feel vulnerable. I wouldn't have learned to say it's okay to feel traumatized, to have a day or a couple of days or a moment where you need to self-care and accept that chicken wings and ice cream are all that's going to keep you alive that day and get back to it the next day. It's okay to say you're not okay. Mm. I learned that through being unwell. Mm. I learned that it's okay not to have a brave face all the time. Mm. So at the moment, I'm going through a pretty interesting period in my health. And one of the things I've done is I've told everybody around me, um, I don't, want to have to be a brave face at the, name at the moment. So if I need mm. to break down and have a, have a cry, I'm going to break down. I'm going to melt down and I'm okay with that. Mm. It's okay to have a why me moment. Yeah. Because you know what? Sometimes it does feel like it's a bit unfair. Yeah. Or very unfair. But it must be really difficult not to, not to think how, how unfair it is, right? Yeah. And I, you know, I had a really difficult call on Monday with the hospital and I can sense there's a wave, there's a tsunami of, oh my God, this is really unfair on its way. Mm. I'm not ready to process that yet. So it's on its way. I can tell it's there. It's waiting for me to be ready. And then we're going to have a moment together. And that's okay because that's a part of me that's really important. She needs to feel, she needs to feel heard and she is going to be hard and I'm going to be really vulnerable that day. And that's perfectly fine. And I think that that is massively different to the person I was when I first, um, when I had cancer nine years ago and I just refused to listen at all to who, to what I was feeling. Mm. Now I really listen in and I go, I'm not a victim in this. It just so happens that I've had a bit of bad luck. Understatement mm. of the year. Um, but at the same time, it's about acknowledging that, okay, it feels unfair sometimes and it sucks sometimes, mm. but at the same time, it's kind of what's taught me how to be resilient. It's taught me to think out of the box. It's given me climbing. Had I not had cancer, I would never have been a climber today. Mm. It's given me my fiance. Um, mm. It's given me a job I love. It's given me a purpose for life I never thought I would have had. Mm. I would never have become a disability advocate or an advocate for people with self-limiting beliefs had I not started working on my own self-limiting beliefs mm. and realizing just how much society's labels contributes to self-limiting beliefs yeah um so it's it's kind of that i think I, it's, it's moved from victimhood to empowerment and vulnerability being partners in this whole journey mm. and yeah, I think you need a balance of both yeah I, and what i'm hearing is sort of like there's a real sense of acceptance in vulnerability there's versus victimhood there's a real like resistance there yes. I suppose right and maybe that's yeah. that's sort of the difference um yeah I used to fight my body mm. before I used to think she was the wrong I was the victim of all of this we're the same person but I used to think <laughs> that um whereas today it's like okay we're clearly having a bit of a moment body 
okay, fine. Let's, let's, mm. let's get on with it. Let's, let's work out what we can do together rather than what we can do against each other. Mm. Rather than what my body is doing wrong to me. Now it's what, what can we do right together? Yeah, that's great. So it's been a bit of a transformation. <laughs> yeah, it sounds it. <laughs> to say least. But then, you know, that's, that's part and parcel of working on yourself and, mm. and really sort of going into it and yeah. being prepared to face your own vulnerability in the process. Yeah. You, you've written a little bit about body image. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and how that re- relates to everything we've spoken about so far? I think body image is something I struggle with. Um, I love my little arm. God, I love her. She's, she has no issues with this whole thing. But <laughs> I have definitely struggled with um, how my breasts look, how my hips are curved. Part of it is societal and cultural. Um, you know, as a person from Pakistani heritage, uh, you know, you're taught to cover up once you start getting shapely. Uh, so mm. once you start entering puberty and things like that, you're just taught it's not good to, you know, um, mm. to, to not be wearing, you know, to, to, it's not good to wear tight things. And as a consequence, there's associated stigma around what your body is turning into. Um, mm. So there's a bit of that that definitely has impacted how I see my body. Um, less so since I've becoming, I've been really having a talk to my body and we're trying to work it out. Um, but yeah, to say the least, I really struggle with when, um, I don't know, for instance, lockdown has happened, but I've also had to go through an enforced period of sedentariness because, I, you know, between a dislocated knee, a blood clot and various other problems, I simply wasn't able, and I'm still not really able to leave the flat. Uh, without help Mm. at the moment uh, which means I'm not really moving as much as I would Mm. like to Um, and you know I'm not allowed to be active as such at the moment because uh, it's it's just too dangerous Um, Mm. and I'm having to sort of bide my time and wait and I'm watching as I'm losing my muscle tone gradually Mm. and I'm gaining flab not through dietary changes or anything because I've been moderate I, I believe in moderation when you eat um, I really, you know, I had an ice cream as a snack just before this podcast, dude. I did as well, actually. <laughs> dude, you know what? Ice cream rocks. Um, <laughs> you know, and and I really believe in moderation. So, you know, I don't believe in restriction where there are no medical issues which require you to restrict. Mm. Um, but um, you know, I'm watching as my body is changing and as I'm losing, and mm. I and I know once I get back on the wall and I'm going to struggle up that three because I'll have lost a lot of physical power. Um, I will struggle with my body image um, because I will think I'm weak. Um, Mm. And yes, I will be deconditioned and I have to accept that. That's just Mm. a fact of matter. I might not like it, but it's the truth. But inherently, just because I might look a bit more flabby doesn't mean I'm not strong. It just means I just need to get active again. It just Mm. means I need to get back to it. Once, once I'm safe to get back my baseline, I'm getting, I'm going to get training again. And I think that's, that's a lot of it. It's a lot, it's a lot around societal, societal image again. Um, you know, if you come from a Muslim background or an Asian background, uh, a Southeast Asian background, or even certain other backgrounds, you're going to have more pressure about what your body, I think any woman or any person for that matter has, Mm. there are pressures around what your body should look like, including men. Um, Mm. But at the same time, or anybody in between, by the way, because we can go non-binary with this. But at the same time, there are added pressures, I think, for women about how you're supposed to look. Um, I have polycystic ovarian syndrome. I have facial hair. Um, You know, that pressure of knowing that 
I need to wax my face. I don't anymore, not since lockdown. And actually it's been one of the most empowering things ever to share a picture of my face with hair on mm, it. I saw that. It was so, I was wanting to do it for nearly a year mm. and I finally decided, screw it, I'm going to go for it. And do you know what? I, it was so fun. Um, mm. It was so fun. Just, it was scary. I was terrified. But when I saw the response and how many other women, and I'm still getting messages about that post to this day, um, about how, you know, people are talking about their own polycystic ovarian journey, or just even if they don't have PCOS and they just have a little bit of facial hair, the the, the pressure they felt to make sure it's properly dyed, hidden, plucked, threaded, or shaved or whatever, is completely bonkers. Um, such high standards, isn't there? It's just such unachievable standards. But who is putting these standards mm. to us? Why, yeah. why, you know, is it, is it us? Um, is it society? Is it media? Is it, um, is it the opposite sex? What is mm. it that's generating the pressure for us to look perfect? And it's also, mm. what is perfect? <laughs> yeah, I think um, it's everything. I think it's everything you've just said. <laughs> It's, it's, it's a little bit of everything, right? Mm. Um, you know, I'm really fortunate the fact that my fiance is totally accepting of what my body looks like, regardless of how well or unwell I am. And in fact, we've had beard growing competitions. It's great. And I think it's just so empowering because I'm just like, it's so normalizing. Yeah, um, and I, I just think that's just such a nice way of doing things. It's just accept mm. that somebody's body is going to be as it is. Um, and if they choose to wax, pluck, trim, do whatever they want to do, dye, whatever. And that is their choice because they want to do it. Go mm. for it. Yeah. I'm not going to say no. Uh, but I'm also going to say, if you feel that you have to feel, you have to do it. Mm. Have a think about why and whether you're still happy mm. doing it and whether it is possible to have a change around that and get out of your comfort zone and try something different. Mm. Yeah. Um, you, you've said that, you know, women from... Um, Muslim backgrounds have got higher standards. I didn't quite follow that. Is that is that to do with covering, or is there other cultural issues there as well? I I think in terms of Muslims, it's definitely covering um, mm-hmm. for sure. And then there's obviously there are cultural standards around um, just I, certainly Southeast Asians. And I actually talked about this in another interview where you know it's really interesting how when I go somewhere. Um, you know, the fact that I might not have fully plucked my eyebrows gets commented on. Mm. Or, um, you know, the first thing you'll get commented on, oh, is you've gained or you've lost weight because people think that's a nice thing to comment on and it's appropriate. But actually, I might have gained or I might have lost because I'm not trying, but I've been unwell or, um, and I'm sensitive to it, but Mm. because it's an issue I'm facing internally. And they obviously don't know, um, but it's not helpful. So is this people from a Southeast Asian background or Muslim yeah, are community. more likely to comment? It's my own, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Women within our own communities are incredibly good at commenting about this. Um, mm. And it's a standard. It's right. completely normal. I mean, any other Southeast mm. Asian woman I've talked to has experienced exactly the same thing. Right. Um, yeah. And that perpetuates body image issues. Mm, um, yeah. Because, you know, if you're not turning up perfectly plucked and waxed and shaped and whatever, or not even perfectly shaped, but at least looking good, um according to where his definition of that is um 
you know, it, it links to, oh, will you be able to get married later on in life? Will you be able to, it links to all of that. Right. Like, yeah. Oh, you're not dressed right. How are you ever going to find a husband? Mm. Um, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So it really does link to a lot of pressures at that point. Right. Um, yeah. That, you know, you have to be perfectly, you know, you have yeah. to look perfect and you have to dress to impress for all intents and purposes. Yeah. Um, um, and what does the, um, the headscarf mean to you? So it's been, that's also been a bit of a transformative one. When I was growing up, I didn't wear one. And when the year before I started wearing one, there were the debates and protests in France about wearing a headscarf mm. and the whole, whether you should or shouldn't wear religious symbols in a public space. Mm. And at the time, I remember telling someone my best friends, I will never wear a headscarf. I respect, and in fact, very much so admire people who do, I won't be one of them. Um, admittedly, I was in Luxembourg at the time. I, um, again, growing up, I, in Luxembourg, I think nobody had managed to successfully work, hold a job with a headscarf. So very different environment. That's not to say Luxembourg is closed in any way. It's just different. Mm. Um, there are very few headscarf wearing Muslims and even if they were wearing headscarves they couldn't get jobs they wouldn't get hired is that the same now less that seems pretty discriminatory pretty... yeah it is it is yeah. it is but it was unfortunately there just weren't enough people to change the status quo there right um okay. and then I happened to be in London over the over a few few weeks I was kind of, sort of flying in and out because I was looking to where to do my master's I was considering either London or Luxembourg and uh, while I was in London, I attended a religious event and that I'd wanted to attend that I don't get the chance to do in Luxembourg because there aren't big mosques doing that in Luxembourg. So I, you know, I got to attend my mosque here and it was, it was lovely. And when I got home that evening, um, I realized I was the only person in the house who technically should be wearing a headscarf because I was the only non-directly related relative in the house. To out of respect to the men of the house, I decided right. to wear a headscarf that evening because it was already on because I'd put it on for the mosque. Right. So I yeah. figured, well, it's already on. I might as well do it for that evening yeah. um, out of respect to everybody else. Uh, and I had a lot of preconceptions about wearing a headscarf. It was going to be itchy. It was going to be really uncomfortable. I'd never be able to do sport with it. So, mm. and how would I manage? Because you're supposed to cover up to your wrist, but I don't have a wrist on my right side. Like, how do I navigate that? And because my mother doesn't wear a headscarf, she's tried but really found it difficult in Luxembourg. Um, I didn't really have anybody I could talk to. And obviously I was worried about a job as well. How was I gonna live a life with a headscarf? And three, four hours after I kept my headscarf on and the male relatives in my family, wider family had gone off to sleep, I had completely forgotten I had a headscarf on. It hadn't gone itchy, mm -hmm. it hadn't gone uncomfortable. Uh, and I was like, "Ooh, that's throwing some of my preconceptions out the door. Hmm. Mm. Maybe I should examine the other ones. Mm. And so I talked to my aunt, my cousin, about it and said, look, I'm seriously concerned about how I'm going to manage the whole arm issue. How am I going to manage pinning my headscarf? What am I going to do? And, and she just went, none of those issues are really issues. Like, we all do it. There's no reason you can't. I'm like, ah, okay. Can I try for like a couple of hours tomorrow out in public and see how I feel? And she went, yeah, sure. <laughs> and, and I said, if, can I take it off if I feel I don't feel comfortable? She said, of course. Okay, 
So next day, I didn't even tell my parents. I was, you know, going to this open day at King's College and um, tried it on. I got on the bus and got on the tube and did it and realized one in three people on the tube that day happened to wear a headscarf. And I was like, wow, I'm not in a minority here. <laughs> Welcome to London. <laughs> Welcome to London, indeed. And I, and I felt so comfortable and so welcome, even you know, to people who were non-Muslim and all the rest of it. I didn't really feel at all like there was an issue. Um, that I sort of decided to have a conversation with God and sort of went, look, God, this is how it's going to go. Um, I'm going to try and wear this to the airport to go home to Luxembourg now. If I get stops in the airport, that's it. I'm done. And if I have issues in my first week in my, cause at the time I was taking a gap year, I was in classes, doing language classes. If I have any issues in my classes, anything else, I'm, that's it. I'm done. Right. That's it. I've tried it. I've done it. Had, had my fill. At least I tried. And, the airport didn't stop me. And I get stopped almost every time I'm in an airport, by the way. So the fact that the airport didn't stop me was a fascination. Um, didn't get stopped. I went to my Luxembourg class and yeah, there was a bit of a reaction for the first two minutes and then everybody realized I was still the same person. Um, and then, you know, I went to physio and it was fine. My atheist physio had words with a religious physio because he was like, you're being unfair to her. And I was like, great, this is, this is super. Um, <laughs> and that was it. That was the headscarf. And at the time I'd started wearing it for religious reasons and I was very covered up at the time. Um, but then one of the things, as I said, when I was growing up, I had issues around my body image and how feminine I wanted to show myself because of the whole issues around covering up. And one of the lovely things about wearing a headscarf was because I was more covered up, I could play. I felt I could play more with my clothes. Mm. I felt I could dress much more femininely by be dressing a bit more modestly. The, the, the photos of you when you go to events, I'm always just like, whoa, <laughs> you, you look amazing. Those dresses you wear look amazing. Exactly. I can play so much with my clothing um, in a way that I would never have felt empowered to do before I started wearing a headscarf. Mm. And yes, my headscarf style has certainly changed. I wear it with a lot less layering now than I used to. And part of that is practicality. Um, the layers mm. were getting my way. Um, it was getting my arms way. It was get, getting the way of me carrying things. I was dropping a lot of stuff. Um, and, and part of it's also because I really enjoy wearing a turban style when I can. Because um, it's just it's so mm. comfortable. Because you get just a bit more air around your neck. Um, and eventually it's moved to... Um, a mix of, yes, I wear it for religious reasons, but I also wear it because I feel really empowered by it. At the same time, every three months, I do a check-in with myself and I say, am I still happy wearing it? Am I mm. still happy wearing it in the style that I wear it? Is there something I need to change? Is there something that's mm. making me uncomfortable? And then I will look at options online and whatever else. I'll look at other women and then I'll see whether I want to try out different things to see whether something else will suit me. For me, the most important thing is that my headscarf, whatever I put on in the morning, sticks all day. I don't want to have to be faffing around mm -hmm. dealing with, and I don't have pins in my headscarf as well. I do my entire thing without pins. So mm -hmm. whatever holds has to go for the entire mm -hmm. day. And as long as that's happening, I'm pretty fine with it because it means it's the least, you know, mm -hmm. least impractical thing that I can find. It's so funny how sort of controversial the headscarf is right because yeah. it really divides people and I don't know if you've listened to the podcast I did with Nassim did you listen to that one no I she's didn't from, she's from Iran and she just doesn't think the headscarf is empowering at all um because she has to wear one right it's yeah. like it's not a choice for her and so I think it's sort of divided in that way right it's like if 
if it's like give people the choice and then yeah, let them be happy with what they choose. So I visited Iran uh, a few years ago and I, funnily enough, while I was in Iran, I probably felt the same because I had to wear a headscarf and I, you have to wear it in a certain way as well. Mm. Um, it's incredibly disempowering because you're no longer giving the choice to a woman on how yeah. she should dress. And ultimately in Islam, the cho- it is a choice to wear a headscarf. Yes, it's mandatory, but it's the same mandatoriness as fasting as praying. Ultimately, the choice is still down to you um, to fast, to pray, to wear a headscarf. So same sort of mandatory choiceness. And as a consequence, like I am all for whoever wants to wear whatever, revealing or not, as long as it's respectful, like as I said, you know, you have basic mm-hmm. respect in there, um, then I'm, I'm all for it yeah it's difficult though isn't it because it's just there's different ideas of what's respectful in different places isn't yeah there? And, and it's, and, and it's hard to find the balance isn't it because in in iran you you want to ha- for those women to have a choice but then yes. that's also disrespectful because islamic law and state law are the same thing right and maybe that's where the problem is is um, I, I yeah know. it's just it does it does feel like it's almost like t- too oppressive over there frankly i mean as i said having been there um but at the same time yeah it's it's like you know for instance a nudist beach is that respectful or disrespectful no as long as it's in that zone and and people feel that they're free in there i'm i won't be against that because frankly that's them having their own empowering experience um i won't be part of it but that doesn't mean i can't respect that others will be part of it Mm. um and that's kind of where i sit with it i'm very sort of you do your thing, I do my thing, as long as we are all happy with doing our own things, um, yeah. then, then that works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think I'm, I'm quite, in that sense, I'm very open-minded about things. Yeah, you're, you're incredibly open-minded. Um, and that's because I've probably sat on both sides of the fence. I've been a non-headscarf and a headscarf wearer. Yeah, yeah. I guess I'll just say one thing. It's, it's related to what we've just been talking about, but just, and we touched on it a little bit before as well, but just about climbing being and not very diverse sport. Um, you know, how do you feel we can make climbing more inclusive? And, um, you know, like from where I'm sat, climbing just feels so incredibly friendly and, and welcoming. Um, but I just know that that's not what everyone's experiences are. Right. And, um, it is very whitewashed. So, um, I don't know, what do you think we can do to be better? Um, so there's a few things I think that can be done to make things better. Um, and at least certainly from Power Climbing London, we've definitely noticed some things that are missing in the climbing community. Um, one is finance. Uh, there is genuinely, you are going to miss a whole section of the population just because it, uh, climbing is actually still technically a luxury sport. Mm, it yeah, is more expensive yeah. to climb than it is to play football in a park than it is to yeah. play cricket. Um, it's a sport which requires knowledge to do it safely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it requires people to be patient with the new people when you're at the wall, which isn't always the case um, when I've definitely seen. And heck, sometimes I've not even been patient, depending on the depending on what's going on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'll, I'll admit freely to that as well. So I think there's, there's sort of around the access, the finance of it, the acknowledgement that if you want to bring certainly people from a different socioeconomic background into climbing, you need to consider the fact that mm-hmm. climbing is a very it's a hard, hard barrier to entry, really, isn't it? It's a very hard. That's a very hard, but very 
doable, manageable barrier, mm. actually, I think. Yeah. Um, that's one. Two, um, while I'm okay with not having role models in my sport in terms of people who look like me in terms of either disability or headscarf or Muslim or fame, um, uh, not a lot of people are. Uh, and a lot of people are very much so you cannot be what you cannot see. Mm. Now I'm an empowered individual. I'm okay with being the person I cannot see. Mm. Um, and therefore to a certain extent, lead the, lead the charge on mm -hmm. being that person for other people. But it requires a lot more of us to be out there being vocal about why climbing is good and the benefits of it. Mm. Um, then you've got the respect in the cultural and religious backgrounds of the people you might be trying mm. to reach. Um, for Muslim women, for instance, there are always concerns around can I or can I not go to a sports hall with other men in the hall and how do I wear a harness? It might squeeze me around the bits I'm trying to cover up and how do I manage my headscarf and things like that. It took me two years of climbing before I went into leggings and the only reason I went into leggings was because I used to use like looser jogging trousers mm. before. And the only reason I went into leggings was because I could not get up my 6B without seeing my toes. And the, like, the, the trousers were not yeah. letting me do that anymore. Mm. Um, so I moved into a more functional format of clothing. Mm. But I'm also very careful about which leggings I choose. I have to be incredibly comfortable with the thickness and whatever else that's mm. going on. Because I'm so conscious that I'm in leggings. Um, and some so, women not, may not be comfortable wearing leggings at all, right? I, absolutely not. And, and I, you know, I am still, I might have many, many leggings in my cupboard now. But... I am still always second guessing myself about wearing leggings. Mm. So it was a big deal for me actually to wear leggings. Like exactly, it, it, right? it, it, it was weird. Like, like everything's on show really with wear leggings, right? Most exactly. kinds of leggings. And I, I saw people do it in America and I was like, whoa, those ladies showing stuff. And then I was like, you know, finally got into it and I was like, wow, there's, these are really freeing. Like I can really stretch and move in these things. And, and that's exactly. what, and then, and then I got, got used to them. But so I can't imagine, you know, if you've got, um, you know, beliefs where you feel like you want to cover up, then it's going to be even harder. And like the odd time I felt really, really uncomfortable from a body image perspective. And you can normally tell when I come to the wall, cause I am not going to be in leggings on that day. Um, and there might be a bit of a battle or I might be feeling really bloated or something's going on where I really don't want to be in leggings and climbing. I have torn whatever I have worn that day every single time now, because the thing is my movement patterns are so different to when I started climbing that my trousers no longer really can cope with it. Mm. Um, so yeah, every single time there's a tear, I'm so thankful I wear shorts underneath those trousers every time, but it's, it's an issue, right? There's no real functional, um, looser type of clothing mm. that is accessible from a price point as well because um, there are you know amazing companies doing amazing clothes in the climbing world but they're all sort of really expensive for anybody who yeah. just wants to come in for the odd occasional climb mm. um, that's a hard thing to change as well isn't it yeah it's a hard thing to change but it's about perspective you can always layer your leggings with like a pair of shorts around mm. the sort of more curvy bits yeah um, and do it that way but nobody's having that conversation with that community no. so nobody's sort of going out and going what's scaring you about climbing and I think that's I think that's the next step it's about going out to those communities and going we want you to come climb but we don't understand the access barriers it's not about yeah. saying I think the access barriers to, to climbing is this and therefore I'm going to do this and you still see mm. loads of white people on the climbing wall 
Yeah, Grit and Rock's so doing do really need? good work in that space, right? So Grit and Rock do really good work, and I'm I'm one of their patrons, so I definitely mm. really love the work that they do in that space. Power London is also doing work in that space because we really don't care who you are as long as you feel you are more you are welcome in Power London. Even able-bodied people are totally welcome in Power mm. London. Um, uh, uh, recently, I've seen a a group of black climbers who climb at Mile End. I haven't climbed with them yet. I would love to once lockdown is finished. And I think it's great mm. that they're creating an initiative mm. for themselves. Because one of the things I found when I was climbing, when I started climbing, was I didn't really have a sense of community with people who I could identify with. Mm. Um, because all the new people I climbed with were all really able and really capable. And... Uh, one of the things that really used to get me, and, and to a certain extent still gets me to today, is you'll know, have a brand new climber who's able and, and, and maybe not having health issues, and they'll progress so quickly. And it's lovely to see that. But then I'm mm. like, I've been going at it for years and years, and I still can't <laughs> progress because I've got a health issue that's stopping me, or I've had a baseline change, or I can't reach yeah. something. And sometimes that's really frustrating to see that. Mm. And, you know, it's internal, and it's an internal, it's probably the first time I've said it publicly like that that it can get really frustrating and mm. and it's kind of why I love climbing with the power climbers because we just get we don't have to yeah. explain why we might um be climbing differently or not making progress in certain things mm. um or whatever else or you might have somebody who might be able to advise you on it and mm. I think that's you those communities for the people we don't see at the climbing wall are missing yeah and until we get them um or at least an, or until we create them somehow Mm. Um, and it, it does mean, unfortunately, it will mean a lot of the, you know, black and Bane people, um, Muslims or anybody else who's not really, who aren't really climbing yet to really get those, those of us who are, it will mean us having to go out and help mm. bringing the new people in because effectively the new people are probably going to listen to us more realistically, you know? Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, it's... But unfortunately it, that puts the responsibility on us. Yeah. It's a weird situation, right? Cause it's like if you're a white person and you just, you, you go into a minority community, you, it, it then becomes a strange thing, right? Because it's like, who, who am I to tell someone that they could benefit from climbing? Maybe they're into another sport, you know, maybe they, it, it's, it's a strange. It's strange. It's, I'm it's, perfectly yeah. happy going into a white community to tell them why it's so good to climb. It's very weird. I'm perfectly happy doing that um maybe uh, maybe a disability community though so i share some characteristics with them um and i'm perfectly happy having that conversation in fact i've had loads of conversation with white people who you know who are happy trying to climb but i i think it would land very differently if you had mm. um you know somebody who isn't from their background telling them you know to climb yeah. and, and they should do that um and one of the things i've been trying to do is actually use um you know because religiously we're told to maintain our bodies because you know our bodies have been lent to us by god and you know they all eventually go back and it's our responsibility to take care of them while we're alive mm. and uh, you know what use religion to help make the argument why not <laughs> dude if it convinces yeah. people yeah you know um then obviously there's the preconceptions about climbing i need to have really strong arms i need to be really strong i need to have muscles no um, but yeah. obviously people don't know that until they've actually climbed and i often mm. just say well it's like climbing the stairs you don't really need your arms to climb the stairs mm. same concept mm. uh and and build it from there um 
So it's, it, there are a lot of barriers which need to be addressed. Many of them are cultural and societal. And, and there is that really hard barrier of finance, access mm -hmm. to the centers, um, you know, you know, if there's, you know, a thousand people in a center because it's really busy and they all look differently than you and they all look really capable, you know, any new person's going to get really intimidated. Oh, yeah. Just, it doesn't matter who place. it is. It doesn't yeah. matter who it is. Um, you know, even I get intimidated going down the climbing walls. Like I get intimidated going to a fitness <laughs> class because I'm brand new to it. And, and, you know, and, and it doesn't matter whether mm. I'm fame or Muslim or have an arm missing or whatever else. It's just cause I'm new to it and yeah. being new to anything makes is intimidating. And that's mm. across the field, whoever you are. Um, yeah. so there's, there's also that element of you are asking them to try something new in a cultural space where which they don't feel they belong necessarily mm. in a place. And you're asking them to spend a lot of money to try comparatively yeah. to anything else they are familiar with. And they yeah. also don't know anybody who does it. Yeah. Like when you say it that way, you know, it's obvious why it's not attractive. Right. Yeah. Um, the thing mm. is what I don't like is sort of like the way people paint the the whole climbing community as either racist or white supremacist even and um it's just sort of that kind of rhetoric i don't think helps either that's right? not it's, helpful and i've never honestly in all my time in climbing i have felt incredibly welcome i have never felt any race racial overtones in any way um yeah there are sometimes people get it wrong from an able perspective and the good thing about it is I'm there to correct them quite quickly. Um, so, you know, I might have a word with them, discreet word and polite word about what is and isn't right sometimes. Uh, and if somebody nowadays tends to go, you can't do that because you have one and a half arms. One, I'll go ahead and do it. And two, I'll make them do it one and a half arms <laughs> and eat their words. Um, but that's just me. Um, and I get annoyed about that type of thing. Um, but then, you know, I've had an incredibly climbing is my life. Climbing is my community. It, it's a, climbing is a way of life. And that I think partly is possibly also intimidating if climbing is a way of life and you have a different way of life and you're mm, very ingrained yeah. in your way of life. It can be very difficult to consider climbing as a sport because I say climbing is not just a sport. It's a way of life for so many people. Yeah. Um, and what people see is they associate climbing with going outdoors and being dirty and how are you going to wash your hands and where are you going to go pee and poop? There's all of that as well. That can mean climbing can be really intimidating. Yeah. Um, and I think it's about having a really honest conversation with these communities and going, we mm. would love to have you there. What can we do to make it easier? Yeah. And yeah. until somebody has that conversation, um, you know, we could probably have a whole podcast about that conversation. And <laughs> it's the same conversation with the disabled community. It's it's not mm. about assuming what they need. It's asking them what they yeah. need, and making the adjustments for it. It's the same with any community. Yeah, this society it has not been designed for minorities. Um, so in order to mm. bring minorities into whatever we want to bring them into, we need to ask them what they need. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I only know of Grit and Rock, maybe he's doing that with um, Grit and Rock specifically targets kind of Muslim areas and specifically women, and girls. right? Yeah, girls, yeah. teenage yeah. girls yeah. in school who would otherwise um, maybe drop out and maybe not go yeah. to college. It's a way of empowering them to realize that they have so much more potential than they've been taught yeah. either by society or upbringing. Um, so yeah they've got a very but they're you know they're 
they're great but they obviously they're only targeting a certain population a certain yeah. way of doing it they're more of a social program i would say urban uprisings doing some good work there yeah, as well urban uprising. they're not targeting it's a bit of a minefield isn't it really because how how do you target specific racial groups you know you go to a school and say oh we're only going to give um climbing courses to the BAME kids um go to a mosque do that? go have a conversation yeah. in a mosque with people go yeah. to a synagogue go to um go to a football field mm. just talk mm. about it just get a group together and say look um i i i, I know it sounds really simple but it mm. might just be having a conversation with people you don't know mm. about climate. Sounds interesting. <laughs> and, and, and honestly, I think society as a whole, we need to get better at having conversations with people we're not used to having conversations with. Mm, yeah. That would settle a lot of things down in our society. Yeah. We, you know, misunderstanding, worrying. I think we worry a lot about saying the wrong thing because we're not part of a community, regardless of the community. We've already talked about disability, but... I think we are very worried about that. And the problem is it's, it's a fear of failure. And it's also like, well, actually, yes, you are probably going to say the wrong thing. And as long as you accept that you've said the wrong mm. thing, apologized for it and corrected yourself and learned mm. from it, then dude, keep trying. <laughs> yeah. The society is getting a bit less forgiving on that front though, isn't it? I mean, it's, 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 it's easy to say that it's easier to say the wrong thing now and it's it's uh it's getting easier to be fired or deplatformed or um yeah it's about it's, being careful about what wrong thing you say of course <laughs> yeah there's uh, boundaries <laughs> there are boundaries to that and obviously there are things that clearly off limits but um at the same time uh i think it is about when it comes to getting different populations to access climbing I think it's about going out to these populations and going, mm. we would like to, you know, what do you need from us? Do you need our center to close down for an hour during the daytime for, um, I don't know, maybe young mothers um, mm. who have dropped the kids off to school who would otherwise not be physically active to go have a chance and have a nice time mm. and just see, and, and, and have that conversation that we're going to close down our center for an hour or, or, you know, give you a space in the center for an hour. Um, and I can imagine so many different centers in London managing to do this because you can just, you can bury your officer in area for them. Mm. They have their own like enclosed safe space for themselves. Um, you know, if it's women or men having a male or female instructor, whatever they want and they prefer. Mm. Um, and then just, you know, from that, asking them gently probing why, why climbing is so difficult. What is it that's mm. causing them and it could be fear of falling for all intents and purposes. Mm. Climbing is a scary sport for some people. Yeah, you know, it's got, it is, you know, yeah. what you see in the media is the super people who are climbing like you, you know, super people climbing off, you know, big, scary things. It can be really daunting. And a lot of people have that in their heads and they're like, well, I'm not yeah. going to climb indoors. Right. So there's a lot of perceptions mm. around it that, frankly, if you want to make climbing accessible, you need to go access people. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe we should end it there but yeah you're doing a lot of great work in this community so i want to thank you for that and thank also thank you for chatting to me it's definitely i think been one of my favorite podcasts actually i just i feel like we covered so much interesting stuff and and had such a great chat the thing it's, is it's, i love i love speaking with you though because it's just i love how you know for instance we've had our little social media back and forth <laughs> 
in private messages. And I love that because I was just thinking, you know, you're brave enough to ask me a question which might be difficult to ask other people. And I've appreciated the fact that you've, you know, you've asked. And well, yes, I've appreciated it your patience. It might lead to some very interesting conversations sometimes from the both of us. But yeah. I think it's really good that you felt that you can ask those questions. And I feel really mm-hmm. honored that you have. Um, so yeah. thank you. Um, and thanks for your patience with that, because I, I don't always get it right. I don't always get it right. I don't always get it right. I get things wrong all the time as well. And I think it's about accepting the fact that we are human. Yeah, totally. We don't always get it right, especially about communities we don't know. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks very much. And um, I hope, hope the rest of lockdown is all right for you. And I hope the rest of lockdown goes better than the last <laughs> <of> lockdown, <laughs> indeed. Yes. We were supposed to do this in person, weren't we? But uh, maybe, hopefully we'll, we'll meet again at some point soon. Oh, in person. Climbing, right? On the climbing wall at some point. <laughs> yeah.